Section 11 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book One, Chapter Seven, Part Two. Six. From that evening till the end of their fortnight at Valambrosa, Joanna lived wholly in the new world Mario had created for her. It was a glowing world, inhabited only by the man and the desired woman. They were always out of doors, and the forest was a shield shutting them off from every beyond of thought. Joanna's bodily well-being was flawless, and they walked, sometimes long distances, Mario taking pride in her vigor and staying power. She was no longer troubled by a conviction of impermanence, nor by the dread of what awaited her. But Mario, though he never left her side, was often in torture. He felt she was escaping him always. When she gazed away from him at trees or stars in a long rapture he could hardly bear it. Even when she entranced him by leaping response to his passion, he had the sense that she was keeping her ultimate self immune, that she was holding back, waiting for some other touch than his. But of all this he said nothing to her. He could not even formulate it clearly to himself. Only by some frantic quality in his embraces did his grievance find expression. What they had was not love, but it had beauty, and it served. 7. It was in Florence that she began to feel herself a prisoner. They had not been two days with Madalena in the little brown villa at San Gervasio, before Joanna knew how far Mario had been from joking when he had spoken of keeping her in a cage. In Glasgow the seeming extravagance of his words had helped her to blind herself to their truth. By the fish-ponds at Valambrosa she had chosen to take his outbreak as a lover's passing frenzy. Even in Florence at first she refused to believe that her husband, if he could, would have had her go veiled like an Eastern woman that he would have kept her sequestered behind high walls while business claimed him, that this desire of his was no bridegroom's freak, but a necessity of his nature, as much a part of him as his pallor or the blackness of his hair. And Madalena shared his view. Madalena was to keep the door of the cage. It was true that walking in the streets of Florence was an entirely different experience from walking in the streets of Glasgow. Joanna had to admit that to herself even before Madalena pointed it out. With her West of Scotland fairness of skin, so distinct from any Italian fairness, she was a clear mark for every bold Italian eye. Besides, at the moment, she carried upon her the lovely bloom which comes to some women when they are first possessed. People twisted their heads round to look, and drew one another's attention to her and she dreaded the stares because of Mario's distorted face. She found this rage of his hard to reconcile with his light treatment of Bob's letter. One day, within a week of their arrival, they went together to change some English money at Cook's office in the Via Tornaboni. The place was crowded. A young Italian, marking Joanna, nudged his companion, and they both fixed eyes on her, murmuring to each other. 
They were at some distance, but in spite of the crowd, Joanna knew by Mario's lowering brows that he had observed them. He even stepped towards them balefully as they passed out by the glass doors to the street. If only he wouldn't take any notice, she thought with anger. Then, just before her, at the little window of the Bureau de Change, some question was asked with a marked Edinburgh accent. Talking to the clerk about a circular note stood a middle-aged Scotsman. He had grey hair and a kind, shrewd face, and by the side of Mario's frenzy his known demeanour lacerated her with homesickness. What was she doing among these insolent and jealous Italians? She longed to ask help of this safe man with the so familiar speech. From the look of him she felt sure he must know her Aunt Georgina, but when he moved away without a glance in her direction she merely took his place mutely and picked up her silver and nickel pieces without counting them. Not speaking, she and Mario walked back down the Via Torniboni. Mario was inwardly vowing that his wife should go no step by herself in town or country, no matter how she might plead. He wondered if even Madalena could be trusted with her. Not only was he maddened by the staring, but he had seen, as they left Cook's, a look of contempt and rebellion on Joanna's face. Joanna, for her part, was aghast at the situation, and knew not which to hate more, the impudent Florentines or Mario's unreasonable anger with what after all seemed the custom of his country. She was alarmed, too, by her pain of homesickness at sight of the man from Edinburgh. Had she not always felt alien in Edinburgh? Even in Glasgow had she not fancied herself a changeling. And here was a new loneliness engulfing her. Was there no place in the world where she might feel at home? Both miserable, they made their way slowly through the slow-moving crowds of the Via Seratani, which was already sunk from daylight. And with the flame of sunset behind them they made for the Piazza del Duomo, where their tram was. Two days before, seeing the Duomo for the first time, Joanna had remained aloof. To Mario's disappointment she had been unimpressed by the checkered mass of its marble. But now, looking up from the pool of nightfall where they walked, she held her breath. There, lifted up to burn and rejoice claiming the sun for its own, like the face of some heavy splendid flower, some Dahlia Gloriosa with a thousand hearts, was the façade. At the sight Joanna's private trouble fell from her, and a new impersonal happiness she was learning to recognize surged in her again. Ah! What a coward she had been about the man from Edinburgh! What could he do for her? He could but take her back to all she had left and must go on leaving. But Mario! Mario was of a peace with the new life. Mario was descended from the men who had spun this blossom out of stone and he desired her for beauty he saw in her. She too, like the façade, had a heart for the sun. And he had discovered it. Let Mario use her for his happiness in the way he would. Let him kill her if that was his way. But in spirit, at least, she would never now go back. His wife's enthusiasm and the quick recovery of pleasure in her face turned Mario's humour. During the race for the tram, which had already started, they were both mad with excitement. All the way home they wooed each other. 8. 
but the bars of the cage were still there, and as one result of their presence Joanna was sorely deprived of the bodily exercise which had always meant so much to her. Mario, having now started work, left the villa at seven, or even earlier each morning. He had not to be at his office till half-past eight, but liked always to spend an hour first in the Cascina, experimenting with the new brakes or seats or pedals that he was continually inventing. He did not return until six, sometimes seven o'clock, when it was already dark. Madalena hated walking. Though only thirty-five, she was already very stout. And as the ordinary household shopping was done by the cook soon after dawn, Joanna was compelled to spend the greater part of her time either indoors or lounging in the garden. She tried to sketch. The little villa, with its ochre walls of stucco on which had been painted imitation cross-timbers of a faded chocolate color, was not attractive. But the stabilimento behind, where the contadini and their beasts lived, offered some pleasant arrangements of wall and terrace, some tempting patterns of sunshine and deep shadow. For hours at a time she tried to put on paper some of the charm she saw in the poteri, and all the while she kept reproaching herself for not having worked more seriously at her drawing when she had the chance. She was always quite dissatisfied with her efforts, and generally ended by laying aside her pencil and falling into a dream. One morning she had been for half an hour thus drawing and despairing. She sat on a cushion upon the low brick wall which surrounded the well, and though it was past the middle of December the garden was full of strong sunshine. On the terrace above the well grew a pomegranate tree. Its lower branches were still green, but it had shaken off its upper foliage and the slender flakes of gold lay all around. Some were fallen in the well and these swam on the black water, a flotilla of yellow canoes, wonderfully frail yet with jaunty prows. On the terrace below the well a fig-tree, quite denuded of its leaves, held aloft a few figs right in the tips of its topmost twigs. Joanna thought some giant's child might have stuck them there for fun. No one would ever get them off now. And as she sat there dreaming and idle, half against her own will, she began to survey her new existence. That afternoon, when Madalena had finished her siesta, they would go together into Florence to the shops. They would not even walk as far as the Querce, but would wait for the Fiasoli tram at the bottom of the rough lane which led from the villa and while they waited, Madalena would sit to rest on one of the green iron chairs in front of the trattoria where Mario kept his bicycle. During the journey to town, Joanna would catch glimpses of Italy that were almost too tantalizing to bear, glimpses of a hidden courtyard, a little piazza with a spouting fountain, a shop-window, a narrow tempting street, a secretive palace. This was her Italy, glimpses and dreams. She was hungry to see everything more closely and at leisure. But on plunged the tram with much pounding of bells and tooting of horns to the Duomo. And at the Duomo they would at once hire a vetturino to take them from one shop to another. Each article had to be bought at a different shop, and as Madalena was very particular, each purchase demanded time and deliberation, quite apart from the great final haggle over the price. Madalena did beautiful Florentine needlework, and all the materials had to be of the best. In one shop she bought the linen, 
and the salesman had to lift down roll after roll of the cool, fine-woven flax from his high shelves before his customer was satisfied. Even then she would look over every meter herself before consenting to beat down the price. No thick thread, no flaw of uneven weaving escaped her black eyes, and she was held in great respect by the shop-people. Her needles and reels came from another shop, the only place in Florence, she told Joanna, where thread could be depended on. It was near the Or San Michele, and beside it was another for embroidery frames and hoops. Here today a frame was to be bought for Joanna, who was being taught drawn thread work. But the shop that took up most time of all was the tiny one on the Lungarno, where squares and long insertions and medallions of handmade fillet were to be had. Madalena went there not so much to buy, for it was a trap for tourists, as to learn new patterns and stitches. And Joanna knew that they would spend nearly an hour there, looking over piles of delicately fashioned dragons and ships in full sail, and wolves suckling Romulus and Remus, before Madalena bought the one small piece she had come for. After that, most likely, they would go to Gilly's for Madalena's glass of Marsala, and Joanna would refuse the sweet wine in spite of persuasion, greedily drinking instead some china tea that tasted of straw, and eating little cakes stuffed with chestnuts. Madalena, who with her mustache, her dense body, her dark, slightly twisted face, and her deep voice, had something of the schoolmistress about her, was trying to instruct her brother's wife. She had taken to Joanna immediately, and Joanna felt warm to her. But to the Italian woman, the girl from Scotland seemed almost as ill-educated as a savage. Madalena could not, for example, get over her sister-in-law's ignorance of all languages save her own, and though she herself spoke English almost as well as her brother, she refused as a rule to speak it with Joanna. If Joanna didn't understand what had been said in Italian, it would be repeated in French. Often the girl wondered what she had been doing during her eight years at the excellent school in Glasgow. Her own ignorance appalled her. Another source of amazement to Madalena was Joanna's general untidiness. She was never ill-humoured about it, only boundlessly astonished. For the gently-bred Italian girl is unfailingly and scrupulously tidy. One day she caught Joanna in the act which had so often grieved Julie the girl was kicking off her outdoor shoes without untying the laces, and the older woman cried aloud in horror. She snatched up the shoes, examined their scratched heels, almost in tears, and a flood of deprecatory speech flowed from her. "'And where are your shoe-trees?' she demanded at length. Joanna confessed she had none. "'No shoe-trees! Mother of God!' Madalena exclaimed in her masculine voice, so harsh yet so warm, and she cast her eyes up till the whites gleamed in her olive face. Next day she made Joanna buy enough trees for all her shoes. She had laughed and cried over Joanna's trousseau, declaring it was all bits. Not two chemises alike, she marveled, and Dio mio, the fineness of this nightgown! With us only demi-mondains would want such things. Why, it will be ribbons in no time. Ah, you see? Here. What did I say? Already a tear under the arm. That is where they always go first. The other side, too. Santa Virgina, 
You English! Is this what you name a darn?" And there and then she had made Joanna unpick her hasty mending with a special pair of fine scissors, and had showed her how a darn should look. It was impossible to take anything she might say in bad part, and Joanna had learned more from her sister-in-law of material efficiency in a few weeks than from her mother in years of despairing correction. She had learned to admire order for its own sake, which was at least a step towards its achievement. With a good will she had set about embroidering her initials, J.E.R., on every one of her undergarments, and Madalena's ready praise of her clever, if untrained fingers was very pleasant. In a short time she actually felt uncomfortable if she didn't put her shoes on their trees the moment she had taken them off. But the life they led at the villa did not satisfy her, and as she sat by the well this morning her dissatisfaction began to take form in her thoughts. She saw Madalena's existence, so complete, so productive of contentment and having the charm of success. And beside it she placed her mother's ineffectual, uncomfortable struggle. And she could not overcome the belief that her mother's way of life was the better, that it was inexplicably finer, nobler, more winning. The comparison roused her, and she turned on herself in terrified disgust. "'What am I, and what am I doing?' she asked herself, and her face burned with shame at the answer she had to give to these questions. She had accepted the role for which Mario had cast her. She had drugged her spirit, had lived for her husband's return in the evenings had dreamed throughout the day of the night's coming embraces. Was this marriage? No, it could not be. Or if it were, there was something wrong about it, something, at any rate, that was wrong for her. Not for nothing had Julie nurtured her babes on the belief that God has a spiritual purpose in the life of each one of His creatures, and a purpose for the fulfillment of which the creature is largely responsible. Joanna had tried more than once to express something of this to Mario, but he had condemned such ideas as pernicious and egoistic, and she understood perfectly what he meant. Yet there it was, hardly so much an idea for Julie's children as a fact, a thing bred in their bones by generations of prayer and faith and sacrifice. Mario might say what he liked, he might even be right. But here and now Joanna knew that she would never get wholly away from it. As if to meet the new, if still vague independence rising in her, she sprang to her feet and walked along the terrace to the little garden gate which led to the steep lane called the Via Barbicana. Pausing there for a moment, she looked swiftly about her. She could hear a contadino singing at the top of his voice behind the outhouses as he picked olives and every now and then he made a rustling in the tree like a great bird, though he never faltered in his loud, heart-breaking song. Joanna stood so still, listening and looking, that on the warm hard earth of the path a lizard darted between her feet. But there was no human being to be seen, and drawing a long breath she slipped out of the garden and started running up the hillside. It was very exciting to be out alone against Mario's orders, and the excitement added a glowing quality to the beauty the girl saw on either hand. The walled lane ran between poderi of ploughed land, and over the walls the olive-trees stretched their branches, now thickly strung with harvest-ripe fruit. 
Here and there the muscular gray wood had thrust its gnarled elbows through the stonework, making it bulge dangerously, and in places dislodging it altogether. All the way up the hill on one side a hedge of monthly roses, full two yards high, ran along the wall's top. It was lusty and lovely, thickly covered still with its shell-like flowers, which showed more fragile than ever because of the hale scarlet and yellow hips which were maturing on the same stems as the new buds. And between the gaps of the hedge and above it was the blue, blue sky of the Tramontana. Joanna, all her blood dancing, climbed as far as a little balustraded platform of stone which curved out to her left where the wall ended in a graceful semicircle. A stone bench ran round it, and its playful builder had decorated it with pillars bearing fir cones on their capitals. She knelt on the seat, leaned her elbows on the ledge, and looked down at the world lying in a bath of morning sunshine. Her eyes wandered from Florence to the gray hillsides that glittered when the air moved. She looked at the yellow villas, blind and basking. She remembered one, almost hidden from here among its cypresses, which Mario had pointed out as the home of a woman celebrated for her loves. The Porziancola it had been called, and Joanna had a vivid memory of the little sunken door in the wall, where it was said the lover was wont to enter. On one of their rare walks Mario had taken her past it. But now, as she looked, La Porziancola, the other shuttered villas, the restless, glittering spume of olives on the slopes, the quieter shining of Florence on her Arno, seemed to her but a part of the passing dream which was her marriage. It can't go on, she thought. It won't last. It isn't real. It is playing at something, pretending as children pretend when they play. The very strength of the December sunshine struck her as incredible, and the hillsides were soulless surely. Yet it was no dream. The seat was hard, its cold struck through to her knees. She really was disobeying Mario in being here. She really had a husband and a jailer, who at this moment was somewhere down there absorbed in his beloved machinery. Joanna recalled the happy oblivion on his face whenever he was busy about his bicycle. That very morning Madalena and she had gone down as far as the steps at the end of the lane to see him off. They had stood there hatless, trembling a little in the early freshness, but enjoying it, while he got his machine out of the trattoria. He had touched it here and there with loving hands to see that it was all right, and had frowned at something which he said would soon want repairing. Then he had kissed Joanna's hand, started with unusual difficulty, and waved his hat without turning his head. The two women had waited, looking after him, till he disappeared round a far corner, and only the distant pulsing of the engine came back to them. And scarcely three hours had passed since then. How many hours were there till his return? Joanna counted on her fingers and sighed. Yes, he was still her lover. She still looked eagerly for his coming, and in the pleasure of greeting him, sought compensation for the empty hours of his absence. But this evening she determined she would tell him some of her morning thoughts, persisting till he came to understand her trouble. She would ask him to help her, which showed that somehow their love was at stake. 
she remembered a phrase of her mother's in a talk they had had during her engagement. "'It is easy enough to fall in love, my childie,' Julie had said, "'but to love wisely is sometimes very hard.'" The mere thought, repudiated at first, that love was hard, came to Joanna now as a stimulating discovery. Of course it was hard. It needed courage to love. Acquiescence was not the way. And at once she pictured herself walking up the lane with Mario when he got home, persuading him to come with her as far as the stone seat, telling him how she had come there earlier by herself. This she must tell him, even if it made him angry. He must not hear of it first through Madalena. And fearful that Madalena might at that very moment be looking for her by the well to give her an embroidery lesson, Joanna rose and hastened back towards the house. As she turned the last corner, coming quickly downhill, she saw that two men stood on the road just outside the garden gate. Immediately she was struck by disquiet. There was some oddness in the way they were talking, turning constantly to look up towards the villa, yet not going in. One of them, a tall man with thick iron-gray hair, carried his hat in his hand, and kept mopping his brow with a blue silk handkerchief. He seemed terribly worried with the sun full in his face. The other, who had his back to Joanna, was small and spick and span. The absurd idea darted through the girl's brain that Mario had sent these people from Florence to spy upon her. She could not believe them ordinary visitors. Now they were crossing the ditch by the little paved bridge from the lane. But again they hesitated uneasily before going on. They looked almost felonious, and the smaller carried a black bag. Joanna wondered if she could possibly slip past by the upper terrace, and so get unseen to the house before them. By the time she reached the gate they had disappeared round a bend in the path. Perhaps she was too late. Breathlessly she scrambled across to the higher path and flew round by the poderi. But as she came down the flight of rough stone steps close to the villa, she saw that she was caught. Immediately below her, on her right, were the two men, both now holding their hats in their hands. And on her left, Madalena, with a question in her face, moved from the house to meet them. Then Madalena had been in the garden looking for her thought, Joanna. What should she do? She might still go back and run round behind the house, entering by the other side. They had not noticed her. But she found she could not stir from the spot. She had to wait. She must see the meeting between the men and Madalena, to whom clearly they were strangers. Now they had met. The tall man started mopping his brow again. The little man was speaking. Suddenly Madalena's hand flew to her mouth. She uttered a loud scream. And Joanna, leaping down the stone steps, was too late to help. Her sister-in-law had slipped down quite neatly and softly and was lying all her length across the terrace. Mario was dead, Joanna knew that before they could tell her. He had been killed in the Cascine. His Alto Velicipede, the men said, had collided with a carriage. Death must have been instantaneous. His body was at the mortuary of the Misericordia, whither the brothers had carried it from the scene of the accident. The smaller of the two men, who was a doctor, begged Joanna not to go there, 
and he looked her up and down searchingly with his wise eyes. The coffin could be brought home later, if they wished it, he said. But better have the funeral from the mortuary. Anyhow, God helped them, not to look upon the poor shattered body. It had been a terrible accident, terrible. But no suffering. That was something. All must have been over in a second of time. The poor signore had been riding his auto velicipede at great speed and on the wrong side of the road, at one of those sharp crossings near the racecourse. The coachman of the carriage must be exonerated in the matter. He was, poor fellow, in a state of collapse. But he had not been to blame. Undoubtedly the signore had been riding on the wrong side. All the things from Mario's pockets were in the doctor's bag. Word of the accident had first been taken to the office, that address being the only one to be found on the body. There the manager had done all that remained to be done. The tall man was the manager from the office. Joanna remembered afterwards how the loose flesh of his face hung down under his cheeks and chin, like a hound's dewlaps, and he had great pouches under his eyes. End of section 11